The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, hey, I, heard, I told you that you're going to be hearing a lot from me, okay? Uh, hope we're doing well, Harvest City. My name's Scott, and I'm the founding pastor here. I've said this uh, like a, a bunch of times over the course of the last four years, uh, but I am one of the pastors here hoping to be uh, one of the vocational pastors here on the diverse team uh, that could lead us in our calling uh, to become a multi-ethnic church. Uh, and uh, just to catch you up on uh, kind of where we've been, uh, we took a three-week three hiatus from the series that we've been doing uh, this whole year for Easter, talking about the resurrection. Uh, and then last week, uh, my friend Dominique Lee was with us and helped us to step back into our whole story series from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and he walked us through uh, the book of Joshua and so many of the places in Joshua where uh, it points us back uh, to Jesus. Any, I don't know about y'all. Anybody here, anybody else like just thankful for Dominique Lee and him coming in and bringing the word. It was really great uh, to sit under his preaching. Um, probably even better for me to just get to hang out and spend some time with my friend last weekend. Uh, but man, it was really good. Like I said, our plan is to take this entire year to walk through the Bible from in the beginning to the very last amen. And our hope is that God would use this series to remind us that the true story of the whole world has been in our hands all along in the pages of scripture, and that every page of it points back to one person, Jesus Christ. So this morning we find ourselves in the book of Ruth. Uh, uh, I know we preached through the entire book of Ruth last summer, but before we begin this morning, uh, I want to say a couple of things, okay? Uh, I, I learned something new about Ruth this week that I want to share with y'all, uh, but uh, before we even get into that, I, I think it's timely, okay? I want to just uh, acknowledge this. Uh, when we laid this all out, I hadn't even considered that Ruth was going to land on Mother's Day, y'all, okay? And so I just want to say God is gracious. The Holy Spirit is really good in the way that he lines things up like this because uh, in the way that we see Ruth uh, pointing to Jesus over and over again, you're going to see it this morning as we unpack the Word of God, uh, it's in a lot of the same ways that we see Jesus through our moms. Yeah, we're going to talk this morning about how uh, Ruth is this beautiful, beautiful picture of covenant love. Uh, man, I think we see that day in and day out in a mother's love uh, for her children. Uh, we're going to talk about how Ruth seeks God's favor. We saw that in two moms up here this morning who are committing their kids to the Lord and seeking the favor of God to move uh, in their kid's life. And we're going to talk uh, also about um, this redeemer that Ruth put her trust in. And uh, I think we see that too uh, in moms and they're just talking to their kids over and over again about a redeemer that their hope is in him and so uh y'all it's really timely i think that we sit in ruth this morning uh but the thing that i learned this week that i wanted to share with y'all is that the first time we ever stumble upon the word hope in the entirety of the scriptures if you were reading from the beginning to the end is right here in the book of ruth it's the first time that the word hope is used in the bible now, I know I've said this before, but the way that we use hope in the English language is much different than the way that they use hope in the Bible, right? Like, uh, other than the Hawkeye wrestling team, so take them out of what I'm going to say just now, okay? Uh, for almost every other sport out there, right, uh, when we use hope, we'd be like, well, I hope that the Hawkeyes win the national title this year. 
It's a, it's a fleeting hope. It's something that like maybe it could happen. Like we want it to happen, but we don't really expect it to happen. Like I said, unless you're talking about the wrestling team most of the time, right? Uh, but biblical hope is something that's completely other than that. It's something that you are very sure about that just hasn't happened yet. Biblical hope is something that you look forward to with an expectation and that reshapes your entire outlook on life. You see, this morning I'm hoping that God will use Ruth to give us that kind of hope. A biblical hope that changes our expectations, that reshapes uh, what we are doing and thinking uh, as we move forward. Okay. A uh, little illustration uh, for this morning uh, as we dig in here. Uh, I stumbled on this really strange piece of history this week, y'all. Uh, and it was very confirming for me in some ways. I don't know if it will be for you. Uh, maybe it will be actually more conflicting for you. Uh, but those of you that know me know that I'm not much of a cat person, okay? I never really have been a cat person. And I even have a traumatic backstory, okay, uh, for why I'm not a cat person. So if you just indulge me, I'm going to tell you really quick, okay? Uh, so uh, I grew up in a household we had a dog, my dog Missy, uh, and when my dog passed away, for some reason, my parents got a cat. It was not a very good replacement. The dog was my dog, and the cat was my sister's cat. Uh, but I remember growing up uh, with this cat in our house, and for some reason, the litter box uh, for Riley got stuck in the bathroom where only I had to get ready for school and shut it down in, at the end of the day. Okay? So I had to brush my teeth in the same room where this cat did its business in the litter box day in and day out. I still have flashbacks sometimes, y'all. It is traumatic, okay, where I'm brushing my teeth, and all of a sudden I just catch a whiff of like, man, no, I cannot be again, you know, like uh, brushing your teeth isn't supposed to bring that memory to your mind, okay? So that's a little traumatic, but I also had this experience one time. Um, I can see the room. I'm walking through our, our family room in my house. Uh, there's a TV on the side. There's a, um, a, a fireplace down here. I'm just walking around minding my own business. I literally did nothing to provoke this cat, okay? This cat, like, hated me. And I'm just walking along, and the cat, I must have shorts on, the cat sunk its teeth into the back of my calf. I mean, we're not talking into the skin of my calf, we're talking into the muscle, okay? This thing, like, ate me like a lion, a bite out of the back of my leg. And uh, regardless, say, needless to say, that cat took a journey across our house, okay? It was as if Nate Kading had kicked a football through the uprights. This thing went from one end of the house to the other as a result of this. And from then on, okay, it was just a traumatic relationship between me and this cat, Riley. Okay, so this is not the strange piece of history uh, that I, I stumbled on, but that is probably why I'm telling you this strange piece of history this morning, okay, because of that traumatic backstory. So this week I came across this strange piece of history about cats. Did you know that on June 13, 1233, okay, we're talking a long time ago, that Pope Gregory IX re released a papal bull that, that associated cats with witchcraft? I'm telling you, when I read this, a lot of things were making sense in my brain, all right? Uh, his papal bull, it's called Vox in Ramah, was the first official church document that condemned black cats as the incarnation of Satan, okay? And consequently, it was the death warrant for the cats in Europe, okay? People just were getting rid of cats all over the place throughout Europe. And just so you know uh, that I, I'm not, like, supporting that kind of thing going on. Uh, the crazy thing is, this is the strangest thing, one of the strangest things in history that I've read in a long time. Many people actually think that it's the depleted cat numbers that was the main cause for the rise in rats and mice that eventually allowed the bubonic plague to spread. 
And so, so, you know, in one side, you know, I'm sitting over here like, yes and amen, get the cats out, right? And then, and then you're like over here and you're like, man, that didn't seem to work out very well for them. And so I'm saying there is some strange history going on here. And, and I say that lightly, but in a much higher and holier way, okay? From the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New, we find God working in strange, even unexpected ways to bring about his purposes. And so during this series, remembering the strange history of God working in our world reminds us that God is still at work in our world in sometimes mysterious and unexpected ways today. So if you see some unexpected things happening in the book of Ruth, man, let's allow that to encourage us in the midst of whatever kind of circumstances we find ourselves today. God might be doing something different than what we expected. This morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear, because, the, because of the strange history found in the book of Ruth, we must expect to find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. My sermon title this morning is Loving Kindness That Came From Bethlehem. Okay, so uh, there's a Bible underneath your chair. Uh, if you're new with us here today and you don't have one at home, uh, man, we would give that to you as a gift. Our encouragement would be put that to work. We believe that God wants to use his word uh, to transform each one of us to be more like his son, Jesus, uh, and that he actively works through that. This is a living document, a living book uh, by his power and his strength. Uh, but if you're flipping to Ruth, while you're getting there, let me set the stage a little bit this morning. The, the first uh, people that we um, are, are greeted in the are Naomi and Elimelech, this couple. Okay, they used to live in Bethlehem, but they left Bethlehem because of a famine, and they went to the country of Moab. They had two sons, and they, their, their two sons took Moabite wives, uh, but all three, uh, the husband and the two sons, passed away before either wife had children. So Naomi then decides to head home to Bethlehem, but her daughter-in-laws have decisions to make about whether to follow her home or not. This is what we see in, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, These are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, y'all. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So after that, uh, after the beautiful showing of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, uh, they make the difficult journey back to Bethlehem. And when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, uh, she's bitter about her circumstances. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. It's like heartbreaking to hear what she's, she literally tells people to call her tomorrow, which means bitter. And once Ruth uh, finds her bearings in Bethlehem and figures out the gleaning laws, she, she decides to provide for Naomi the best that she can. So Ruth, this Moabitess uh, woman, uh, stepping into a new place, decides she's going to provide for her and her mother-in-law. This is what we find at the beginning of Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, who was named was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. 
So then Ruth works her tail off. Okay, here's how the story goes. She goes out, she works her tail off in the, in the barley field, and she finds favor with both the man in charge of the workers and with the owner of that field. His name is Boaz, and he is a family member. So in Ruth chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So at that time, Ruth comes home with a boatload of barley, and Naomi recognized the amazing favor that she had been shown by God. And so Naomi comes up with this plan. She's like, well, if we're getting this much favor, let's keep seeking God's favor here. There might be even more of a blessing that he has in mind for us. And so what we see in chapter 3, verse 6 is this. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And then, or do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So Boaz then has to do some crafty business, okay? That's how the story goes down, by sticking to both the heart of kinsman redeemer law and the leveret law. And Boaz ends up redeeming Naomi's property and marrying Ruth in an incredibly kind gesture. And so then what we see in chapter 4, verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Church, because of the strange history found in the book of Ruth, we must expect to find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Like I said earlier, we're going to see in this book that Ruth exemplifies the covenant love of God, that Ruth illustrates how to seek God's favor, and that like our moms, Ruth's story points powerfully to a redeemer. Will you all pray with me? God, we ask that you would meet us in your word this morning.
God, I pray that you would give me words to speak, that you would give us ears to hear. And that those of us that find ourselves in difficult circumstances right now, those of us uh, that might, like Naomi, say, well, you could just call me bitter because this is what I'm experiencing. God, I pray that you would right now meet us in the midst of that and give us expectations that are in line with who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, here's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, Ruth exemplifies the covenant love of God. She doesn't exemplify a contractual love of God. That's not who God is. She exemplifies a covenant love of God. Y'all know the difference between a covenant and a contract, right? I feel like we've talked about it here before, uh, but I'm going to do it again uh, just uh, for the sake of getting it in our brains this morning. A contract is an agreement between uh, people, uh, like usually two people or two parties. We'll call them party A and party B. In a a contract, if party A uh, upholds their end of the bargain, party B is contractually bound to uphold the other end, right? The interesting thing about a contract, though, is if party A doesn't uphold their end, party B is not bound by said contract at all. Or if party B doesn't uphold their end of the bargain, party A is not bound by that contract at all. That's the thing. A contract is just saying, okay, if you do this, then I will do this. Right? But a covenant is something altogether different from that. Right? Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, in, we talk about a marriage covenant is because the place where we see and learn the most about covenants is in the relationship of God and his people. Primarily in the, in the Old and New Testaments between God and his, his, his chosen people, Israel, or God and his church uh, in the New Testament. You see, a covenant is an agreement between two parties or two people where no matter what, if party A uh, upholds uh, their end of the deal, party B is going to do their part. Uh, but it actually works the same on the other end. If party A actually does not uphold their end of the covenant, party B is going to be faithful to the covenant because it's a covenant. Because uh, they're going to be faithful regardless of whether or not the other person uh, upholds that. That's one of the most beautiful things that we see in a marriage is that even when we step on our, our spouse's toes or sin against our spouse, uh, that they are they have covenanted their life to us and sick or, uh, or, or and healthy or sick or you know like in rich or poor uh, to to do what they have uh, vowed themselves to do. You see. What we see here in this text is a covenant love that's illustrated so beautifully by Ruth. But the one that we learn the most from about covenant love is our triune God. And our triune God uses this word, uh, it's Old Testament, it has this deep throaty H sound that I can't make a lot of times. It's hesed love, okay? Uh, Maybe it helps with the mic, but I really can't make the sound, okay? Uh, and so this love is, uh, it's not an ordinary love. It's a stubborn, costly, sacrificial, voluntary kind of love. It's the steadfast love that God has for his people. It literally is the bedrock of our faith. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, I already read this, but I'll read it again. It says, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, right? Uh, she's ready to head back to Bethlehem. They each have a choice to make. She says, go return each of you to her mother's house 
May the Lord, here it is, deal kindly with you. This, this word kindly is that word, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi starts by using the language of covenant love as she prays over her daughters-in-law. And she prays that God would deal kindly with them or, or show them that hesed love. You see, Naomi's great losses have convinced her that she has lost God's loyal love. But the, that's the beautiful thing when you're watching a story and you're not in it, right? You can see that she hasn't lost God's covenant love, even though she feels it. So in the audience, we're aware that God's covenant love is still moving toward her. And so then Naomi later gets a taste of this as God speaks his loyal love to Naomi through Ruth's selfless actions. You hear it? Like I, I told you, these are some of the most beautiful words that you see in the scriptures. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi's like, Ruth, why don't you just head home too? But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Do you hear it? Till death do us part. And when Naomi said that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. You see, even though Orpah, that's the other sister-in-law, turns back, Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. When Ruth committed to go with Naomi, she was leaving behind her family. She was leaving behind the only place that she had ever lived. And in this beautiful statement, Ruth declares her loyal covenant love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Not only to Naomi, but also to her people and to her God. And she says, till death do us part. This is a covenant. It's a covenant of love. You see, Ruth was under no obligation to help Naomi at this point, but it was through Ruth's next level loving kindness and self-sacrifice that God worked to renew Naomi's faith. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible in the notes says it like this. Ruth not only demonstrates the reality of her faith in God by her actions, she also became a living demonstration of his covenant love to Naomi. Y'all, isn't this what our moms are like? Our moms are like a living demonstration of God's covenant love. We treat them in ways that they do not deserve to be treated over and over again, don't we? And our moms just lean back in with loyal, steadfast love, treating us the way that we do not deserve to be treated in those moments. And they are this living demonstration of God's covenant love toward us. You see, we didn't even touch on this yet, but one thing that we need to understand that's going on here is that Ruth is set in this time period of the judges, okay? This time period is described as a time in which people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals, like other gods. Knowing this background to Ruth's story should make the embodiment of God's covenant love shine even brighter. You see, Ruth's courageous, self-giving love shown, shown toward Naomi is like a bright star on a dark night. You want to compare this to a mom's love? It's like a mom loving her kids the way that God loved them when no other mom is doing it. Okay, Ruth is living in a day when all these people are doing what's right in their own eyes and doing what's evil in the sight of God. And still, even though she wasn't even raised among those people, this Moabitous woman shows this incredible love to her mother-in-law. 
You see, in a much higher and holier way, Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven and came to earth. Jesus left behind the Father and the Holy Spirit, whom he'd spent all of eternity with, and he did all of that to demonstrate God's love toward sinners. Jesus is more than just the embodiment of covenant love. He is love. This is no ordinary love, y'all. It's a stubborn, costly, sacrificial, voluntary love. And family, Jesus did this. He, did not, he didn't come to earth that first Christmas because his people were faithful or clever or obedient or attractive. Although that is true of some of y'all, okay? Jesus put on flesh and was born of a virgin because of what Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, has coined God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Y'all know in the, in the whole story, we've been trying to follow, right, the Jesus story of the Bible. That's one of my favorite things is that redundant phrase throughout it, right? God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. His hesed, I can't make the sound, y'all, I tried. His loyal, steadfast love. Even though all of us have sinned, God moved toward us in Christ because he is a covenant-keeping God. Harvesty, what if God used Ruth's story to give us biblical hope that reshaped our entire outlook on life? What if we saw life as this amazing opportunity to embolden the faith of other believers around us by committing to love them even when it hurts? What if we started seeing each of our days as just the right occasion to demonstrate God's uh, love of unbelievers around us by telling them we're going to be the kind of friends that are here to stay for the long haul, even when the going gets tough? You see, when many of us think of covenants, we think of marriage, right? And that's okay. If, if you're married, then Ruth's words to Naomi might be similar to the words that you use to commit your life to your spouse. May you receive the loyal covenant love of God today and then be able to extend that same love to your spouse to the glory of God. But just as covenant love is rare in marriages in our country today, consider how much more rare covenant love is in our culture, right? If you screw up at work, what happens? You might get fired. If you say something wrong to your girlfriend, she's just going to break up with you. You have a bad game, well, coach is like, well, son, why don't you come take a seat right next to me here on the bench? But when we love others through their failures, when we are loyal to others even after they've hurt us, when we are kind to others even after they've been rude to us, it's in these moments that the covenant love of God shines brightest in and through our lives. You see, what if we as Christians were once again uh, known as a people who loved others, even those who might not have the capacity to love us in return? What if we were known for being people who take in orphans, who comfort widows, who care for the sick and protect the, the, the poor and vulnerable? Y'all, this is what I think God is calling us to do through Ruth's example this morning. And that brings us to lesson number two. Ruth doesn't just illustrate God's covenant love for us. She also illustrates how to seek God's favor. And see, Ruth and Naomi were coming back to Bethlehem in an incredibly difficult state, okay? They are exhausted. Uh, they are as poor as poor gets. And they had no men to lean on in a patriarchal society. And on top of that, 
Ruth literally wore it on her skin that she was not one of God's chosen people. She, she was a Moabitess, and everybody could tell that just by looking at her. You see, in order to understand how Ruth navigated this incredibly difficult situation to provide for her mother-in-law, we have to understand Mosaic Law. This is where it's going to get a little nerdy for a second for you, okay? Three Mosaic Laws informed Ruth's actions, and she creatively presses them to the breaking point. So you've got, on one hand, you have these gleaning laws that landowners are required to permit the poor to scavenge their leftover grain, okay? You want to go check it out, look at Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. Literally, landowners required to leave the leftovers out there so poor people could come and gather it and that they could feed their families. And as we've talked about here in the past, there's another law going on here, and it's if a man died without a male heir, Leverett Law compelled the man's biological brother to marry his widow and so that a son would be born to this union, and that would carry on the dead man's uh, line and inherited, he'd inherit his portion of the family estate. That's in Deuteronomy 25. But there's this third law going on here. It's called the Kinsman Redeemer Law, and it's placed responsibility on a man's nearest relative to buy back his land if they fell on hard times. That's in Leviticus 25. So all of that's going on, and Ruth like creatively presses these to the breaking point. We see it in Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Naomi has had a relative. This is like an author's note, right? Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. You're like, hmm, maybe the author told me that. I'm supposed to pay attention, right? And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whom, whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. You see, I, think one, I think one of the most beautiful things about Ruth's story is how she challenges all three of these laws, taking it from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. Okay? Think about this with me. If... Uh, Lost my spot. Sorry, dude. Uh, here we go. Um, so the letter of the law permitted Ruth to glean in the field. Okay, When she went out and worked in the field, the letter of the law permitted her to do that. But the spirit of the law was to feed the poor. So instead of settling for picking up leftover scraps of grain, as the law permits, Ruth presses Boaz for permission to glean where, uh, what's, where hired hands or hired female harvesters are bundling freshly cut grain. You see, we've got to see that Ruth worked so hard out in those barley fields to provide for her mother-in-law, but she also clearly sought out God's favor through his people. So let's look at the interaction that happened when she finally met this landowner, Boaz. Okay? Notice God's favor here. It says, Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. He's like, you're not just back with the reapers. Here's where the female harvesters are. This is better than what you were expecting. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's like, this is even better, okay? If you're in another field, there's a lot going on that they don't always treat outsiders the way that they deserve to be treated. He's saying, I'm also protecting you. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He's saying, I've seen the covenant of love of God on your, on your life. 
the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Y'all, remarkably, Boaz puts his full weight behind Ruth's mission. And she hauled home this staggering 29 pounds of winnowed barley. More than a half month's pay per male harvester, okay? According to ancient Babylonian records. So, but in, in the coming days, God's favor was probably even more profound. It got better than just a pile of barley. When she realized just how much Boaz had done to protect her from racism, to protect her from rape, to protect her from other atrocities that could have come upon her as a Moabite woman in Bethlehem. Y'all, Ruth is a bright example to each one of us of what it looks like to seek and even expect God's favor on our lives in difficult times. Church, we cannot understand the God of the Bible or the Bible without understanding this idea of grace and favor. Grace is one of the most overused and underdefined words among church people. And without a better understanding of it, we're not going to be under, able to understand how beautiful Ruth's story is. So we're going to go to my man Paul Tripp, okay? Paul Tripp says that grace is the freely given love, forgiveness, acceptance, and help of God. It's been said that grace is unmerited favor found in the person of Jesus Christ. In one article, Paul Tripp talks about how grace enters our lives in three powerful forms. One that we're most uh, familiar with is the grace of forgiveness, right? It's the idea that through faith in Christ, our sin can be completely covered by the blood of Christ. We can be accepted by God. But I wonder if we're as familiar with the other two forms of grace, okay? A uh, second one is the grace of enablement. In grace, God gives us the only thing that can truly help, and that's himself. Uh, the grace of enablement says this, that God literally like unzips us, climbs up inside of us, zips us back up, and then empowers us to do the very things that he has called us to do that we were unable to do in and of ourselves. The grace of enablement is saying that sin doesn't only... Uh, that leave us guilty it leaves us unable and we need god's enabling grace to empower us to say no to sin and say yes to all that god's calling us to do but then we've got this other grace it's called the grace of deliverance moment by moment he wars on our behalf to deliver us from the sin that still remains in our lives god doesn't grow weary or tired and he never leaves us alone to deal with the brokenness of the world around us he is a gracious deliverer. Family, when we seek God's favor the way that Ruth did, we are expecting God to be the gracious God that he is, to treat us better than what we deserve. Look at how Ruth sought God's favor in all three of these forms. We don't know for certain, but when Ruth makes this acknowledgement, she says to, uh, to Naomi, like, I am going with you. I'm leaving behind my people till death do us part. She makes this commitment. She says, I'm going to not just make your people my people, but I'm going to make your God my God. The assumption among most scholars is that that is where she made this commitment to God, that she was forgiven by God's grace alone. She stepped into the grace of forgiveness. Church, if we want to live as God's people, then we need to seek out the grace of God's forgiveness daily. 
In the same way that the Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask for daily bread, it also teaches us to ask God to forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What about the grace of enablement? How do we see that in Ruth's life? Well, one way that we know for certain that God enabled Ruth was in giving her a son, right? It's point blank in verse 13 of chapter 4. The Lord gave her conception. But if you were to track, uh, you know, through this story and watch God's like unseen hand throughout this story, you'd see that God's enabling grace is all over Ruth's life. It had to have been God's enabling grace that empowered her to speak those loyal words of covenant love to Naomi in chapter one. It must have been God's enabling grace that empowered her to glean in the fields, even though she would have been at great risk as a Moabitist woman out in those fields. And anyone who's ever asked another person out, anybody else, you know what I'm talking about here? Okay, when she laid down at Boaz's feet and she had to entrust herself uh, to his care, knows that it took a lot of grace in order to step into that situation. Family, the beautiful thing about how Ruth sought out God's favor in her life is that she did not only ask God to give her favor, but she worked hard and trusted that many times God gives favor through his people. You see, I think Ruth saw the favor of God that was upon Naomi. So she stuck with her and went back to Bethlehem. I think she saw the loving kindness of God in Boaz. So she saw him as a conduit of God's grace and favor. She moved near to him. If it's true what the Bible says about us being unable to do what God's calling us to do in our own strength, then we need to become professionals at seeking out God's favor and looking for enabling grace wherever we can find it. But lastly, Ruth was also digging into the grace of deliverance. Church is a desperately poor migrant field worker in Bethlehem. That's who she was. Ruth was in need of much deliverance. It was not only the sin of her father-in-law and husband that led to her poverty, but the sin of racism may have held her down much longer if it had not been for God's deliverance. I absolutely love how Ruth learned of God's law and then sought God's favor and deliverance by leaning into these laws. When she learned of the gleaning laws intended to provide for the poor, she started working in the fields. When she learned of this leveret law, she started showing up in places where she knew Boaz was going to be. Harvest City, one thing I want to remind all of us who need God's deliverance in our lives today is that sometimes God's grace comes from obvious places. Y'all, sometimes God's grace comes from obvious places. If we, see, if we feel stuck in a certain situation, maybe we just need to ask someone near to us for help. If we've been plagued by a certain sin problem for a long time, then maybe we need to go to a counselor and dig a little deeper into that. Jesus also taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. And Ruth's story reminds us that God intends to answer these prayers. And that brings us to lesson number three this morning. Ruth's story points precisely to a redeemer. Let's get our face in the text. Look at chapter three, verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. 
Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. This is like, uh, you know, daytime TV, y'all. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. God, we need to see this. Ruth was completely and utterly dependent upon another for her long-term provision. And God generously and kindly provided that through her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. You see, another word that's often overused and underdefined in the church is redemption. Redemption is at the heart of Ruth's story and the grand story of redemption, right? That's why we call it the grand story of redemption. The whole story of the Bible is about a redeemer. Redeem, redeemer, and redemption are so central that they appear some 23 times in these four chapters. Redemption is defined as the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Another definition is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. So when Ruth looks at Boaz in the eyes and she says, well, she's down at his feet. I don't know if you can see his eyes at this point. Okay? But when she says, you are a redeemer, she's leaning on two different legal institutions described in Mosaic law. In a sense, she's saying, you are the kinsman redeemer who could clear the debt of Naomi's family by buying back the property that was once Elimelech's. And in another sense, she's saying you are a relative of Naomi and you could save Elimelech's family name from dying out by marrying Ruth, perpetuating the family lineage and giving Naomi a grandson in that way. You see, Harvest City, for Naomi and Ruth, a redeemer like Boaz held the promise of help, protection, security and redemption. It was in Boaz's hands that she had a future and a hope. And Boaz is just a type of Christ. He's meant to point us to our Redeemer. You see, the same is true of us when we hear for the first time that there exists a Redeemer who may save us from our spiritual poverty and hopelessness. The same is true of us when we find out that there's a Redeemer who can take away our guilt and give us right standing before God. The same is true of us when our eyes are open to the truth that there is a Redeemer who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, can bring us into his very family. For Ruth and Naomi, Boaz is the only one who has the willingness and the ability to redeem. In this respect, he represents the nature of grace found ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, who was under absolutely no obligation to redeem sinners and could have left each and every one of us to our just condemnation. But Jesus willingly, well, that is such an important word in the gospel. Jesus willingly took on human flesh and paid the required redemption price, death on a cross. In the story of Ruth, we see a beautiful picture of the ultimate kinsman redeemer, the ultimate Goel, Jesus Christ. This true and final redeemer willingly did everything necessary for the redemption of his bride, the church, 
Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Through Jesus, in a momentous gesture of covenant love, God provided redemption from sins, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But even as we get a glimpse of our Redeemer, we can't miss the radical changes that came about after redemption occurred. You see, Ruth and Naomi came into Bethlehem exhausted from a long and arduous journey, but soon after redemption, they found rest. Naomi came into Bethlehem. She says to these women, why don't you call me bitter? Like she doesn't just feel bitter. She's like, this is the label that I wear and I want you to call me this. But after redemption occurred, these women, the same women that she told her to call her bitter, they're saying, blessed, you are blessed of the Lord. You see, these two down and out women came into Bethlehem empty and soon after redemption occurred, they were full in a number of ways. One of them was like literally pregnant, full, right? With blessing. City, if these are the blessings of redemption in our natural world through the Mosaic law, how much more then must the supernatural re, uh, blessings of redemption through the cross of Jesus Christ be in our lives? If there's one way that Ruth's story changes our expectations this morning, it should be in the area of our expectations regarding the blessings of redemption. Jesus has saved us from sin. The Son of God has bought us with a price. And because of this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been delivered from spiritual poverty and given the riches of Christ. Family, we have an awesome Redeemer, and we must learn to expect awesome results as He transforms us from one degree of glory to another. Let me just pause right here and just say, so many times, it's true in my life, I'm sure it's true in your life too, that my circumstances tend to dictate my expectations. What if we were to live like Ruth and we let what God says in his word, if we let who God is and what God has done in our Redeemer dictate what we expect in our life? You know, that brings us home. As we wrap up this morning, I want us to take a moment to consider the strange history found in Ruth's story. Sure, this story is, it's one of the most beautiful and elegant stories in the entirety of the Bible. And it reveals to us some important details about King David's genealogy. But it's really strange. There's not only one, but two generations in a row of God using foreign women to carry on messianic lineage. Right? Boaz's mom is none other than Rahab, the woman in Jericho that helps out God's people. Uh, and then we've got this Moabite woman here. And it's through these two women that the Messianic lineage is carried on. Heck, when Ruth and Naomi come back into town, Naomi asked these women to call her Mara, which means bitter, because by her account, God had dealt bitterly with her. And you're like... Gosh, it was so bad for her that she said things like that. But by the end of the story, these women literally say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. 
and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. What a strange story. That she had put all of her hope in her sons. Her sons died. She was ready to send her daughters-in-law back to Moab. But this daughter-in-law becomes more to her than even seven sons. But y'all remember this little town in Israel that Ruth and Naomi came back to empty and soon after found themselves full of joy? Well, that little town, it was the little town of Bethlehem. Now, we sing, we sing songs about that, that town now. And as many strange stories go, that little town in Bethlehem would later be the setting where another baby would be born. And this bundle of joy would be the one literally from whom all blessings flow. The one that would change each and every one of our expectations. Will you all pray with me? God, we do pray uh, that this uh, story of this faithful woman uh, who experienced your covenant love and shared it with her mother-in-law, this, this woman who learned to seek out your favor, over and over again. This woman who had been transformed so much that she looked to you to give her a redeemer. God, we pray that this story would shape our expectations this morning. That you would meet us here in the midst of Ruth's story and that we wouldn't stop there, but we would follow the signpost of Ruth's story all the way to the true and better, to Jesus, our redeemer who has the power to change our lives and change each and every one of our expectations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.